you can be a super serious songwriter and you can be saying like really serious shit. You can do that a lot of nights in a row in coffee houses and bars and nobody's listening. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. This is Sven, and today I am here with Paul Kotimer. And you may know Paul, uh, having played bass with Morgan Orion and the Afterburners. Um, but mainly, he plays as Paul Kotimer as the singer-songwriter. Paul, welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Great to be here, Sven. Thanks for having me. No worries. All right. And so for today, we're going to listen to your song, Let's Hang, off of your album, Terrarium. So without further ado, let's listen to the song and then we'll just talk about it. Great. Let's hang. Let's hang. Yeah, you and me, let's swing. Without a care in the world And all our bills paid too Ooh, at least until Tuesday Let's blow it off Blow it off No need to even give it a second thought it, it doesn't even have thought. to rhyme You know you've worked more than enough now, it's half past fuck this shit o'clock Yeah, I just said that cause that's what time it is So let's relax And just forget about those little aches and pains Yeah, let's kick back and kick it And think of all those sweet, sweet hearts and friends Good friends keep you from going Let's dance. Let's dance. Let those who wish to make romance, baby. Hey, get a room, you two. And take a world of care off your mind, dear friend of mine. And let's hang. And take it nice and easy. Those little aches and pains. Forget those aches. Yeah, let's kick. 
it back and kick it and think of all the sweet sweet hearts and friends good friends keep you from going crazy let's dance let's dance let those who wish to make romance baby yes and take a world of care off your mind and totally unwind and that's So my favorite question that I always like to start off with is, do you start off with the lyrics first or do you find something on the guitar or do you have a melody in your head that you just match with the guitar and lyrics later? Mm-hmm. Songwriting process question. The short answer is it's complicated. And to elaborate, most of the time when I have a song brewing, what's happening is there's an idea. From elsewhere in my catalog, you may know, a lot of people know this song of mine about the $100 bill in the tip jar. It's, uh-huh. it's called Ballad of the Benjamin. So in that case, what happened was like a year, literally a year went by when I was walking around going, I should write a song about the $100 bill in the tip jar. I mean, because like, that's going to be a rock. Yeah, I'm gonna, that's a hit. I'm going to get it, you know? And so that voice will be going on in my head for a really long time. But it will take a long time before I actually sit down and make the thing happen. In this case, in the case of Let's Hang, like probably the the length of time it took me to write the vast majority of the song is shorter than it takes to perform the song. It was like, oh, well, it's just these this chord progression that I that I loop around mostly stolen from vintage music mm-hmm. and then the lyrics like literally came from off the top of my head then after that there's a long period of micro tweaking stuff that most listeners wouldn't even notice that i changed a half of a word or changed a phrasing a tiny bit in in the case of this song that's how it was like 95 percent of the song was like plump right on my plate uh, without even thinking it through words music I don't know. It just happened. But then it's all about the micro tweaks. And also with this song, it's totally about the arrangement, about bringing oh, yeah. the people together to make it, uh, you know, to make it this vintage magic, magic thing. Okay. So if we're going to talk about the people, okay, how many musicians are taking part in this recording process for this song? There's me, 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 and me uh, on voice, guitar, piano, bass... And then there was a recording session featured Graham Duncan. So there was a session that took place at the music building where I recorded guitar and vocal together. And Graham Duncan was the recording engineer at that. And Uh then Elizabeth Simpson came to do a demo version of the four-part harmony. So she Uh sang all four parts separately over just what would end up being the lead guitar solo section so she did that and so then i had this chunk that i could bring to other people and say okay when when we do this for voice singing group here's what it's gonna sound like and then from there i got the two singers jen and olivia from chickadee sermon involved and emily mccown from sora rise and also now in relevator involved and i heard she was on your show recently yeah so those were the The big four vocalists, Jen, Olivia, Emily, and Elizabeth, they rehearsed with me for about 
oh, on and off, you know, maybe three or four sessions over the course of about a month uh-huh. in the wintertime. And then in February, we tried it live one time at the Rose Bowl as part of a, a Girls Rock CU fundraiser where all of them were participating, uh, you know, as, as Girls Rock supporters. And so it was great to be invited on stage to do to do that. And then once we knew we could, you know, flub our way through it at the Rose Bowl and get away with it, we said, well, we're probably ready to take it to the studio for real. And then uh, we got a date with Ryan Groff at Perennial. Chickadee Sermon is already working there uh, on a record. And so they were already familiar with the place and Elizabeth and Emily had not seen it before and it's a magical wonderland. So that was a great little session. And let's see what was left to do after that. We've got the vocals in the band and... Oh, and then it was Clayton's turn. Clayton Deering, uh, formerly of The Fights and in lots and lots of other projects that I don't even think I could list here. He lives right down the street from me in East Urbana. And I asked him to uh, put that pedal steel on there. And so we got together in his little basement recording studio and did that final overdub. So that uh, was everybody. Yeah, I thought some of the effects that were used, it I mean, it does sound like a vintage recording, straightforward, like right out of the 1950s of you would you would hear it crackling on your mm-hmm. on your phonograph if you would say that but one thing that i noticed is that you have that that slide guitar that's just kind of floating in the back it's got so it's like drenched in in reverb and it just like it's just hanging out in the back and it's mm-hmm. and it's adding those i i i mean it it sounds so distinctively like 50 style mm-hmm. and yeah yeah thanks those, for noticing some of those like crunchy four-part harmonies in the background are so good sorry if this is a repeat but mm-hmm. you did you write those four parts i mean in oh terms yeah that's, of, that's written ahead of time i have a program called sibelius i've been writing charts in sibelius for a long time i had gotcha did, did that for for David Chang, when he was in town and we played together in Theory of Everything, I would write out parts for him to play. And, uh, you know, if you can work with people who can read the charts, then it makes it a million times easier. So, yeah, all, all that's written out ahead of time. We tweaked the arrangement as we went in a couple of really small ways, but it's almost exactly the way it was on the paper when, when we went in the studio. So, uh, you know. I'm happy, super happy with how that turned out. I guess I'll I'll even back up more. Hmm. Is this a, a is this a particular style of music that you spend a lot of time listening to in general, or did you just say, "Hey, this would be"? I mean, I enjoy this style mm-hmm. of music, but is this something that I wanted to? I mean, I want to take a crack at making that kind of a sound. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been doing vintage recording styles. And vintage songwriting styles. Almost on every release I've done in the past 20 years, there's been at least one. There was one called Everybody Smokes in Hell that I put out in the year 2000. That was co-written with Brandon T. Washington and recorded at Pogo Studio um, back in the day. Uh, It had Brian Wilkie on guitar, who's a a local scene expatriate, and had Ian Shepard on drums and... Tim Green on piano and, you know, so the people from the jazz scene at that time. Since then, you know, I, I tend to do a number that's either like a samba number or a classic swing number or an old time number. I've got a number called Let's Keep It That Way that I put out uh, on uh, on an EP about three years ago that's more like 
uh, 20s old timey music or depression era old timey mm-hmm. music. Um, and and I'm always, always intrigued by uh, making a current day recording studio sound old timey in one way or another. You know, I've never gone so far as to like, or no, actually I have, but I've never <laughs> shared it with the world, uh, gone so far as to have like record pops and crackles and just put that on in the background. You yeah. know, yeah. there, there are songs that do that that you know the digital release of this song has the pops and crackles from from a vinyl record included and i didn't go there i don't go there but i am wildly curious about working with old analog formats even if there was if i could get my hands on a a record lathe that that cuts a a disc heck yeah i'd use it oh yeah can i cuss on this oh yeah okay hell yeah yeah i'd use it (laughs) Uh, if uh, if this was weft they'd say oh, no yeah. probably not just you know keep yep. it keep it under your tongue if you can um but y- obviously you can bleep stuff out or whatever yeah. you need to do or i can just say look i have a i have a plug-in that will actually add cracks and you can uh-huh. even tell yeah. it to yeah yeah i think Denser. it's it, isotrope or whatever uh-huh. is that you yeah. know it's free on reverb i was able to get that plug-in but mm-hmm. um it even has a spin down one where you can like hit it and it does that oh wow and ends but um the only thing is then it stays down there so you have to have have the the automation to say like hey stop doing that Mm. and then it will bring it back fun toys that was one of the discussions i had with uh like zoe uh willot and emily mccown just having they both spent a lot of time on their own using their laptops and and putting music together that way and with with today's technology you can really get a good sounding album with with just having a really good ear and having good eq and just a few plugins and it it does a lot of the magic for you mm-hmm. um how long have you been playing music i've been playing music since kindergarten so that'd be 40 five years ish 44 years but uh and i've been writing songs since i was 13 so that'll be uh i can't do the math, math. yeah that'd be math all, not quite 40 years 30 35 to f- years and i've been playing bass in bands since 1982 or three so yeah kind of a long time so when you started the these words mm. did you did you knew that you wanted I'm just su- not surprised. Surprise isn't the right word. What is? What was your motivation to match the the let's hang uh, words with this style of music, or did it just seem very intuitive to you, or did you just say, "Well, I'd like to try that"? That's a that's a fun question. I can't even I can't quite remember what got me to sing a song entitled "Let's Hang." I think. I think I was just sort of thinking about making a little contrast between the vintage style, you know, let's hang. I don't think was a, as a thing mm. that you would have said in 1951. I think you would have said, let's hang out or, or you would have said that people were hanging out. Um, I, but I, I don't know enough history of, you know, American slang to know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that let's hang is something that's a little more recent than that. So already there's a friction between the present 
and and the past and i kind of liked that and i wanted to roll with that and then you know when when i hit upon the line it's fuck this shit o'clock it's half past fuck this shit o'clock yeah that's kind of where i it was like well today you don't say half past or many most Mm. you know oh i mean maybe maybe they do in some parts of america but not others or maybe they do in some english speaking but in my ear half past sounds like something that's a little old-timey all by itself Hmm. but fuck this shit o'clock is obviously something that didn't make sense to anyone until like 2013 or so and so to put those two things together was the fun for me Hmm. and i and like when i hit that line and i knew that it was gonna fall at the spot where the verse uh, jumps to the break i knew it belonged there and I, I I knew I was on to something. And everything else around it is like kind of a no-brainer for me. You know, like I write a lot of songs that are like a lot of gut-wrenching and a lot of hard work on the lyrics. But lyrically, seriously, total no-brainer, this song. I love the fact that you are able to, to utilize the background singers to be like, what? At that point, just do this nice slide down, like, phew. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was a different cue there, and we changed it to a what from something else. And I don't remember what it was before, but what what we ended up with was definitely uh, it was golden. Top secret information here that that I can share with the world uh-huh. is that it, that we we did that one we did those cues that one cue we did it completely separately. It wasn't like it was part of the the flow of the song. Mm-hmm. We just like said, okay, let's not roll the tape and let's just do some what's. Oh, and they they just did some what's, and I said that one, and we spliced it in without the tape rolling. So I mean, I, that it, it ruins the magic, doesn't it? To think that we just did that separately and, and spliced it in. It was like a sample. Oh, I think that makes it really <laughs> interesting, you know, to be able to have, you know, that that we can do that in in such an not an easy way, but I mean that, that it's something that in the digital realm, you can just kind of slice it and add it where you like mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I could put that, it, I could make that a snare and it could be kick, what kick, kick, what? Yeah. Anytime yeah. I wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, I, I might, I your might, next big hit right there. Right. Totally. Totally. How would you classify your, your writing style other than singer songwriter is just such kind of a broad term, but I mean, I'm going to carry on a little bit more with, Mm -hmm. with why I'm asking this is because I feel like even your most serious topics that you address, you, you always have some like a wink and a nod with it where you, you have the cleverness of, I don't want to call it dad jokey, but you know, just you, you have a little, you, you play with it a little bit in terms of your 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 lyrics i'm not sure exactly how i want to say it as i'm coming up with some of these questions as mm-hmm. we talk but here's what i can tell you about that all right you can be a super serious songwriter and you can be saying like really serious shit you can do that a lot of nights in a row in coffee houses and bars and nobody's listening and it be- and it starts to turn you into a self-loathing monster and the way to fix that problem is to crack jokes. If you stop taking yourself seriously and make it at least a little bit of a curveball humor, then people will actually listen. I don't know when or how I learned that. I know that probably when I was in my 20s, I was a serious, serious songwriter and I wrote about serious, serious stuff. Uh Like, you know, and that batch of songs I don't listen to anymore because I was trying too hard. Hmm. 
now that I, I'm going somewhere with a particular song, when I find the funny thing about the serious situation, that's, that's when like the songwriting tap turns all the way on and then it can come out. Um, so it may be that the funny, the funny thing about being funny is, is that I simply couldn't write a song without it anymore. Well, I remember when I had uh, Isaac Arms on mm-hmm. uh, with Withershins, uh, they said that they would write songs in such a way and the way that it would be constructed within the music that they wrote and then how the band itself would arrange it is that they always had to have uh, a part that was just so loud that it would get everyone's attention at the bar. Mm. I just think it's interesting that they're... Uh, that in some ways your own songwriting is informed by how you take it out and perform it and how to put... And I guess in some ways maybe I'm saying the du- most duh-iest thing, <laughs> but um, it, it it just fascinates me because, you know, for the most part, in terms of my writing, I'm a very much like write it and get it recorded or write it and have it out there and not worry specifically about a performative issue or Mm -hmm. being having to take it out on the road kind of thing so it's very fascinating to hear that sense of you take your your craft so seriously that in a joking way (laughs) that you take it so seriously that you realize it's important to be able to have that connection with the audience in order to make your serious point come across well yeah there's a lot of things going on there number one is that making records is great because you can perform for people over and over again at your best um whenever they want to hear you and also music is more of a live performance art as much as i totally respect and enjoy listening to a lot of artists who seem to do almost all of their work like in private in their bedrooms in their studio Mm -hmm. uh you know sanctum sanctorum fortress of solitude there's lots of great music that comes from that and for me i have to have this kind of love hate relationship back and forth with the stage because being on stage is about hospitality a lot of times you're like welcoming people Mm. and and you're at their service in a way that that you're not when you're in your in your bedroom studio you know when you're in your bedroom studio you're the boss of you and nobody else is the boss of you at a live venue a lot of times you're staff you're like you know Hmm. another one of the bartenders and if you get a tip in your tip jar then cool for me the two have to work together well as much as i hate lugging gear Mm. i have to accept it I see. Yes. Yes. But just just be glad that you didn't like pick up drums. Well, the bass and the upright bass is is not as bad as a drum set, but it has its um it it has its drawbacks, especially if there's a flight of stairs involved. Flashback to Mike and Molly's upstairs. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't think Oh no, I did have to bring my bass up there once. I played with Morgan up on up on that stage one time. I miss that a lot, especially mm-hmm. uh, that was one of those things that kept going even throughout the winter months, yeah. you know, that, that, that 
that was one of the places that you could go there two or three times a week mm-hmm. and and see a great show get a live music fix and like it would always be local people mm-hmm. and it would always have some out of town act mm-hmm. so it was it was kind of the icing on the cake let's see so you had written this and you were starting to put it together how did you did you know that you wanted to have just bass piano guitar and slide mm-hmm. or did you just is that one of those um forgive me if for my ignorance but is that a standard setup for i mean i can see the guitar mm-hmm. bass and piano mm-hmm. but the slide yeah uh it fit and it, and it sounded exactly like it should mm-hmm. but i i didn't know if that because when somebody says like i had a jazz trio you right. know exactly what what, what instruments, instruments there have. should be mm-hmm. so was there was there a particular reason that it was that kind of configuration mm-hmm. the two-word answer we're looking for is western swing uh-huh. right so if you've ever seen uh in yeah. town there's big sandy and the fly right boys will will play or i i know that i've heard people who who play pedal steel will talk about the fact that like when hank williams senior was playing hey good looking what you got cooking there i don't think there was such a thing as a pedal steel guitar mm-hmm. it was just a um a lap steel and uh the the performer had to figure out how to um, move the slide back and forth to get various kinds of chord configurations. Whereas now you've got these pedals and you push yeah. down a pedal and it loosens or tightens one of the strings in the configuration so that you can go uh, up or down a half step or even a whole step. And the the magic of the pedal steel comes along in like 60s or 70s country western and it has this sort of you know, buttery, mellow flavor that can go mm. all over a ballad, but it also can be played um, with speed and dexterity in a way that, that um, you know, makes for, like, jaw-dropping solos. Um, mm. And I knew that... Uh, I, I knew that without it, it would have a feel that was... Um, that, that was 50s, and that might... Um, that might hang together with something like Patsy Cline or with Nat King Cole. So like that, those two artists are from around the same time period and, and they have, they could have a similar feel if they did a swing ballad. But when you put the pedal steel in there, it's like laser beam Western swing. Mm. And I wanted that partly because of the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl has been, you know, a home away from home for Urbana uh, acoustic music for probably five years with Hootenanny and and at the time when I wrote it I didn't know that that this amazing development was going to happen where uh, Marty and Charlie and Sam now own the bar there's been a lot of inspiration in, in my songwriting career that just these these past few years that's come from going to Rose Bowl for Hootenanny and and it, it just it just seemed like the right thing it works the opposite way too where it's like I know these people from town and they're my friends and I know what they do and I can kind of like I don't have to go to central casting and think about a generic thing. I'm thinking about specific people and writing for them specifically. And that's a trick that I learned from working with David and from studying jazz music. I mean, there's this, there's this thing that's going around about Duke Ellington, you know, not to say that I'm as good as Duke Ellington because (laughs) I know this arranging trick, but no, it's, it's a standard arranging trick that your music goes to the next level when you're not, you're not writing 
uh, a piece for trumpet you're writing for that particular trumpeter because you know how they can name mm. it i wasn't as familiar with with each of these musicians that i worked with but i sort of had a hunch because i'd heard emily do stacked harmonies on her own yeah. um, recent demo i i knew that elizabeth simpson was you know a jazz glee club close harmony singer i it's obvious when you go to see chickadee sermon that that their strong strong point is that is that they do their high harmonies in unison and i said well if you put those two on top and put uh, those two uh the other two underneath then you're going to have a, a great great quartet with a lot of experience already behind it and they could probably just walk in and nail it and so it was about knowing knowing the people around me that that helped me make it happen and then you know clayton I worked with him a little bit when when I when Morgan would have him on board, and I just knew that it would be a fun project for us to work on together. So yeah, the whole thing fell together. It's interesting because it's like you're you're painting with with their timbre in a way, like you're using their particular tones and their uh, particular mm-hmm. performance style as well as their especially especially with uh, formatting the the four part harmony is you're stacking the chords based on this timbre that they all have. Did you did you know that their voices would blend so well? I, I had a hunch. I mean I I could hear where each of their ranges were. I mean that's that's a thing when you when you listen to singers, mm-hmm. it's like you, you can tell whether they're a, a lower a middle voice and you know I knew who was high. I I, I didn't quite know who was going to be on each level, but I had a hunch. And mm. the and the way it worked out, it was just like Elizabeth was low, Emily was next, and then Olivia, and then Jen on the top. And it was just like I wasn't sure, you know, exactly who was going to take which, but I kind of knew that that it was it was either going to be the top two and the bottom two, either where they ended up or flip flopped. Yeah, I I remember being a little worried about it because I w- wasn't that familiar with Jen and Olivia's work, and so I was kind of like, there was one time I went to see them play, and I was like, okay, what note is she hitting there? That's the, her highest note, and I'd be like, I'll try and figure that out later. <laughs> so, so let's see, um, it looks like they're they're playing in A, and so if you hit that high note there, what did I, you know? I was trying to figure all mm. that out. <laughs> Oh, so I was I, like, I'm pretty sure they can hit all the notes that are on this on this chart, and I'm pretty sure they can do it no problem. I was going to ask uh, about kind of how you enunciate in this and how you use your voice that it, mm. it just sounded distinctive and it almost sounded, it, it had a little bit of like Louis Armstrong and, and uh, you know, just, just some of those... Uh, earlier vocal performers mm-hmm. and and even in that style i'm sure that was intentional but was it was it something that you set out to be like i need to focus on making that sound or mm-hmm. it, or does it just naturally come out that way when you perform in that style i don't know I guess. yeah those, those are good questions um you're familiar with louis prima aren't you i probably but i uh-huh. it's not hitting my <laughs> Right, it's okay. not hitting my mind. So, so Louis Prima was a Louis Prima was a New Orleans trumpet player of the you know, probably most famous in the fifties, and he's responsible for the version of just a gigolo that David Lee Roth stole, whenever that was in the late eighties. There's a movie that slips my mind what it's called right now. It was like one of these nineties. Uh, movies that was set in the 50s and and the movie is uh, the premise of the movie is louis prima is going to come to dinner 
at this little Italian restaurant and and everything that happens there and his music was f- featured um, throughout it and that's kind of like how Louis Prima got uh, remastered for CD and re-released on CD and like collected it there in the in the 90s and I so see. so I've I've been aware of Louis Prima for a long time and um, I you know his music has has flair and um tons of personality and he's got a silly version of pennies from heaven and uh, um uh you know that silly version of just a gigolo and uh you know so he he treats the classic catalog with a a lot of humor and his rhythm section is super tight and it's a it's a little big band so just like just two horns and a rhythm section and he also has some hokey novelty numbers about sputnik there's a song called beep 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 (laughs) that has like a a weird little electronic noise that might be a theremin or might be just like some kind of oscillator on a switch you know about traveling through outer space but it's just Uh like a little it's just like a little blues riff that sounds like it could be could be bill haley and the comets but you know it's got this stupid thing about how how the satellite goes beep 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 just like my heart does when <laughs> right <laughs> I, i'm gonna have to check that oh, out and you, i will yeah, reference that yeah. in the in the liner notes if i can find it i mean yeah it, yeah type in louis prima to any uh spotify or or youtube and and i'm sure you'll get you know at least his top 10 best known hits and so and Louis Prima definitely ripped off Louis Armstrong. I mean, he was a trumpet player. He was in New Orleans and, mm. you know, he played in the same kind of style where he didn't have to hit a lot of notes, but everything had tons of power. And that same sort of improvisational melody style where there there d- doesn't need to be a lot of variation up and down. It doesn't need to have a lot of long notes. Um, it can be short and punchy and, you know, like really playing with the the lyrics and a lot of licks, a lot of little riffs and things, you know, that's, that's what Louis Armstrong taught, you know, to the entire American songbook and Louis Prima ripped it off. And then I ripped it off from, from there. And so did everybody else. So I don't feel bad about stealing it. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely that kind of phraseology and that was definitely what I was thinking of when, um, when I make the little crack about how it doesn't even have to rhyme. That's, Mm. that's definitely like the kind of thing that a jazz singer in that style, that little crack that, that you would throw in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all there, all that, all those things. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Jubilee Cafe. Jubilee Cafe is a free weekly meal program at Community United Church of Christ, 805 South 6th Street in Champaign, Illinois. Jubilee Cafe serves a home-cooked meal from 5 to 6.30 each Monday. Their mission is to feed hungry people by cooking healthy, delicious meals and by serving their guests restaurant-style with servers waiting on tables. Jubilee Cafe is open to anyone who cares to eat with them. Because food insecurity among students is so high, they serve students as well as others in and around the Champaign-Urbana community who struggle with hunger. Meals are free to all and will be served each Monday evening, located in the accessible lower level of the building at 6th and Daniel Streets in Champaign. For more information on the meal or how to volunteer, Go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email them at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. That's jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. 
it sounds like as as long as you have been here in Champaign-Urbana, you've mm-hmm. been a part of the scene, wouldn't you say? Or Yeah, sure, sure. I, I came mean, here I guess... in 1993, and I found the red herring coffee house they had a thursday night open stage at that time mm-hmm. and the the host of that open stage was john davis and he's been in seattle probably for about 20 years now but um he was living in the belfry above the the channing murray foundation at that time and and was doing stuff like hosting movie nights and he has lots of stories about how like how steve albini um blew off firecrackers in the place and has never been invited back and you know just really (laughs) really great uh local music history and he says he has a four-track tape of the first ever time that poster children played ever out live and that he he recorded it just for fun because he was at the Channing Murray at the time and John Davis is it was great to that he was the first person I met because he's a very soft-spoken anchor of of the Champaign-Urbana scene from that time and you know so he taught me a lot of stuff about just uh like how to host a venue and you know just like just be a quiet presence and and make sure that everything works and setting up PA system and hosting an open stage kind of thing and so that was that was a great first step and a great place to start and at the time I had demos that I had made in Chicago before I came down uh, for grad school and grad school didn't go well we'll not talk about that so anyway in those early times in the early to mid 90s for me yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff was was happening. Like Mabel's was still a thing, and the Blind Pig I think had kind of just started where the Cowboy Monkey is now. And at the time, also stuff was happening like that whole grunge thing that helped Hum and Mother mm. go from local to national was starting to happen at that time. And like, I was also like doing sound and helping organize shows for bands that i'd never heard of because i was a little too old for it so there was like i was a little too young for one group and then i was a little too old for the other group and the other group was you know braid and american football i was like well, i've never heard of these bands but i guess they're playing here tonight <laughs> nice well you know it's stuff like that that makes me think you know this is why we want to give uh give voice to any bands that are starting up because you never know they may turn out to be uh, something completely famous but uh i mean there are certainly some people here that that do have those aspirations and i wouldn't be surprised if they get some national acclaim you know yeah i I mean that just keeps happening i hope it happens for 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 all of them all of those that want it yeah everybody that wants it yeah us tired old (laughs) Motherfuckers want to stay home. We can stay home. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Your Handmade Records is celebrating its 25th anniversary or has celebrated. I think it was. And will celebrate. And will celebrate. uh, 25 years. 25. Yeah. So what? Well, first, where where does the the name come from? Uh, Hopefully, it's not super obvious. As, no, it's totally super obvious. Like okay. the idea was, the, the idea was that that it, I mean, originally I I thought to myself, what it would be like if you took a scissors and cut a circle that would be the label that you put on 
a vinyl record and you did each one by hand that would be the handmade record label the label itself would be you know i thought about that as like what if it was that was literally what i freaking did you know (laughs) um and and then i realized that that was stupid um (laughs) but at the time i was putting up cassettes and i was making them in batches short batches of 100 or 200 which was about like where at the time that's where you can get a the the right price bump Mm -hmm. and so 200 cassettes is a flat that's that you could carry in a single box if you needed to um it's not convenient to carry that many around but um you know and instead of having uh instead of making 500 or a thousand and having them each shrink wrapped and each with uh you know was j card uh, that that was uh produced at, at a press and you had to pay for these you know color separations and all these other things that that had to be done before it was all digital I said, you know what? I'm gonna do. Aside from the duplication of uh, of the cassettes themselves, I'm gonna see how much of it I can do by hand myself. Mm. And so I was doing stuff like cutting, and folding, and scoring um, J cards, and folding them over, and packing them in, and then put the cassette in, and flip this cassette closed, and that's one done. 199 to go. And so mm. I did it like that. And now. It's kind of like lots of bands do that. I mean, and probably, probably at the time, lots of bands did that too. But I, um, you took a a, a special pride in doing it by hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was kind of like I, I really wanted to think about uh, about each copy being unique, and I wanted to think about the time that I put in doing one at a time being meaningful. But I didn't have the whole package yet. I was still trying to make it look like it was pro. You know, like that, uh, that when you grabbed my merch in your hand, you didn't know that I had done all these things by hand to it. It looked like, you know, and, and probably in the 90s and the early aughts, there were lots of people who were like, you know, it's like trying to make the outside of the tray card look just like it would if, if it mm. was on RCA Victor, you know, or whatever big record label, um, you know, and, and trying to make the inside liner notes look just like they would if they and and in that process. Uh, us DIY people ended up teaching ourselves a lot of things about, you know, like how to do desktop publishing and how to interact with, um, you know, some, uh, Kinko's or whatever to get it to look just right. And, hmm. you know, and, and now it's all of that is like so totally baked in. And it probably was at the time, too, but I thought it was unique. The merch making is baked into being a band. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, that's, that's totally a thing that you have to do. If you want to be a band and go from town to town or bar to bar, you want to make extra gas money, you got to have merch. And in order to have merch, yeah, it's going to take a lot of cut, fold, paste, assemble. Yeah. One down, 199 to go. So that's how the, the handmade record label became one of the, you know, the sort of the focus and, and the, and the thing of what I did. And then five years later, I was lucky enough to get good advice from people who knew stuff about the internet because i thought i was going to get hand dash made records as my website and they said don't do that just have it be handmade records all one word and so now i'm the proud owner of handmaderecords.com and that's coming up on its 20th anniversary in june i will have had that website for 20 years it's completely derelict you know like you go there and you'll see stuff that i put up in 2007 uh-huh. and i don't know how to change it really um <laughs> i could go into the details about who's hosting uh-huh. it and all this other stuff someday i'll set aside a few hundred bucks and have it done right and then right. it'll just point to my band camp and point to the itunes and it'll just be you know it's 
in one sense, it's like, it's dumb for me to have my own website, web address. And on the other hand, handmaderecords.com, dang, you know? Yeah. It, it might be, you know, just objectively, financially, might be the most, you know, profitable thing about my entire music career is the fact that I own, you know, that URL. Yep. But I did want, I did uh, want to say something that kind of pops into my head as you're talking about doing the handmade records that and maybe it's just for me to say to myself but as much as i can feel like a fuck up i think it's fascinating and and very reassuring to think that the way that you end up learning how to do things right is by doing them wrong for a lot of the time and going through all of that Doing things wrong is how you figure out how to do them right, I guess, is the, is the way I'd like to look at it. And also, another fun facet of that is doing things wrong because you don't know what the rules are helps you innovate and break all the rules and become, an, uh, you know, a new and innovating thing. So, and, and this is one of the, like, bedrock things about punk rock, DIY culture, grassroots working class culture, is that you don't know the rules because you haven't been to school. And because of that, you do what you can with what you have on hand and the folk process, too. Um, you do what you can with what you have on hand. And then, shazam, you made something new that nobody had invented before. Um, so, yeah, totally. Um, so I'm saying not only is it your way that you learn how to do things right by doing them wrong over and over again, but also you, you also invent new things by by blowing past the rules, not knowing what they even are. Let's see. What What is your favorite venue in the Champaign-Urbana music scene? Mm -hmm. Well, as I've hinted earlier, I'm having a real sweet spot for the Rose Bowl these days. I've been friends with Sam and Marty and Charlie since I first discovered that there's this Monday night open mic that's called Hootenanny and that was like six or seven years ago that I start started going there I always have admired the way that Sam Payne uh hosts an open mic um instead of having a list that you sign up on he would just keep it all in his head I don't know if you heard but Emily McCown is taking over from Sam and is going to do the uh the hosting uh of Monday Night Hootenanny and I think that's a really cool thing and she has like lots of really great ideas and and wants to keep that vibe going. And I, th I think that's a, a really great instinct. And and she can do whatever she chooses, of course. The other facets of, of my favoritism for the Rose Bowl include, number one, it's so darn close to my house. <laughs> you know, oh. Iron Post is the same way. I, I love how uh, Iron Post is, you know, it's a real musician's bar and really su supports downtown Urbana and is an anchor there. And, you know, I'm pretty biased in favor of Urbana. Not just because it's walking distance downtown Urbana from my house, but also just because it's been the underdog for an awfully long time. Yeah. Well, and, and it's and it's coming out more and more that, you know, it seems like Champagne, sorry, Champagne, has been kind of dropping the ball with a lot of venues in Champagne, downtown Champagne that are drying up and a lot of venues in Urbana that are just kind of appearing, you mm -hmm. know, out of out of no well not nowhere but i mean the effort has been stepped up and i feel like now it's going to be more urbana that you go to to find music every single night you know live music mm -hmm. every single night 
Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with how do you maximize the amount of money you make as a bar when there are lots and lots of bars elbow Mm. to elbow all around the block. And live music might not be the most profitable thing for a bar on a Saturday night. You know, let's face it. Mm. Most of the people who go out, they, well, I don't know what it is they want to do, but what they want to do is hang out and watch TV and drink. It looks like to me, you know, and to see a band is like, wait a minute, I have to plunk down an extra two drinks worth of money. Right. Just to be in this place. I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I'm going to go to the other bar and leave this bar empty. And then the bartenders or uh, the owners who, you know, maintain the books, they see that they're like, oh, the live music came in. We started charging a cover. And then people were like, oh, there's a cover tonight. I'm going someplace else. Bye. And they go, well, the answer to this is to get rid of the cover. And the cover is for the live music. So the live music has to go. Bye. And then the live musicians go, oh, no, we are homeless now. And also jobless. And if you do have live music and it, there's no cover, then um, people seem to be coming in more, but I can't say necessarily if that's the case. I don't know. They don't necessarily appreciate it unless they kind of chunk down a little bit of change. So. Yeah. And I think also there's a question of like, when people are going out, are they going to a concert venue that happens to serve alcohol? Or are they going to a bar that happens to have a band? And and this is, of course, discounting completely that there's a really great indie DIY all-ages scene that's happening in basement rooms and at the IMC and, you know, all over Champaign-Urbana that's not about selling drinks that somehow manages to get band after band from out of town, even on weeknights, you know, in front of a packed house even though that house is very very small and you know 20 people constitutes packed that that's also happening but when we when we talk about bars and music and and concerts there there is that question it's like well what are the people there for are they there for a drink or are they there there for the band and it really seems to me it seems anyway that in uh that in downtown urbana at all i've mentioned two places and there's really quite a few um, that are that are uh, popping right now, Blackbird and Twenty Five O'clock and Sip Yard and and uh, lots of places in downtown Urbana are hosting live music more and more often. And to me, anyway, it seems like the people are there to support that performance. Those bars have other nights where it's like you know you could just shoot pool or watch TV or hang out with your friends. But for the most part, when they're full, is they're full for bands. Uh, yeah i mean one that pops into my head right away is like the iron post Mm -hmm. you know that's you don't you don't see that particularly packed unless there's music and Mm -hmm. talk about a place that also brings in kind of the i guess campus scene isn't the right word but it at least brings in performers from the u of i Mm -hmm. the jazz parkland jazz group too yeah oh park yeah absolutely c4a groups you know, Iron Post is a host to all of those, you know, educational related musical ensembles that, you know, aren't necessarily rock. Sometimes it's student work, but it's super high caliber student work. And then also there's professors, people who teach music for a living, who are leading bands and ensembles. Top notch. Can't say, can't say a bad word about Iron Post. Dang. Except for that lock on the men's room door. We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. 
Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004, carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week. They can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Uh, let's just talk about what is your favorite non-musical thing? Well, m- my favorite non-musical thing is art that's not music. <laughs> you know, any, anything, theater, visual arts, um, and creativity in general. And of course, that's, you know, music is a subset of that. Um, well, is there a particular visual art these days that is just floating your boat? or This weekend was Boneyard Arts Festival in Champaign-Urbana. And I saw so much amazing visual art of all kinds. I'm just blown away that this that Champagne Urbana is so dense with talent of every kind, including you know scrappy music scene or whatever <laughs> whatever it is that we do. But yeah, oh wow, just blown away by so much stuff in Boneyard this weekend. I don't know what I like, but I know it when I see it. You know, it's one of yeah. those goofy yeah. things. I saw some works at the warehouse next to Twenty Five O'clock yesterday and i can't remember the artist's name off the top of my head i'm sure somebody will shout it at the screen when they hear me but there are these big what looks like poster paper um like three feet by five feet and then there'll just be a really small number of elements and they'll have it'll be like a single texture and a single color in a kind of a blob and and then it, it looks like everything was put together extremely quickly but that a lot of experience is behind this extremely quick movement. And I think that's what I, I was, I found most compelling about it. It was like, well, if you think you could do this yourself, you could do as well as this, your own self, you're wrong. You, what you would put together under these circumstances would look like shit. And what this person is doing is masterful work, even if it takes 10 seconds and how it got to be masterful in that extremely quick action was, you know, by, amassing experience and by thinking about it really deeply and to me that's pretty darn inspiring all right so the artist that paul mentioned was jody birdwell and you can find their work at jodybirdwell.com so check it out and uh, i'll also include that in the liner notes all right now back to the show Another thing I did at uh, Boneyard was I stopped by the Rogards building, which is like they're just south of uh, downtown Champaign. And I popped in there and I saw these humongous sort of free stroke bouquet paintings by Faith Gable. And so they're these big panels about four feet by four feet or maybe even larger with like really big brush strokes of just flowers, just, you know just pure aesthetic pleasure just like doesn't have to mean anything beyond what what 
what you see is what you get. And uh, I just really appreciated those. So paintings, mm. Boneyard. Right. Do you venture into any of those uh, other other than musical <laughs> arts? Well, um, I'm married to a really great collage artist. And she has taken up the entire dining room table with her work. And this is Jesse Riddell, who's the executive director of the Idea Store, which... Oh, okay. So... Shout out to the Idea Store. Yeah, totally. So that's the thing that she does. And I um, I thought I was a halfway decent collage artist. Because, you know, all of my CD covers for the past some years have been collages. And I make collage postcards for people occasionally or a little little of this and a little of that. Or, you know, if you're going to make a flyer for a show, you could sometimes toss a collage together, you know, a couple elements here and there. And I've frequently made collages out of like, you know, just take an issue of National Geographic and really quickly without thinking of it, pick three images and then slap them together and hmm. see what happens. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. So that's kind of like where that's the level that I'm at. Whereas she will sit and meticulously cut a person out of a background. You know, it's like, I could say, you know, you could do that in Photoshop. <laughs> right. And she'd be like, shut up. <laughs> you know? Um, yes. So so th that's one of my connections to visual arts is that. Also, my dad was a watercolor painter his whole life. And I have some really, really wonderful things that are left from that career. You know, bowls of fruit, houses, beaches, wonderful. lighthouses. Yeah, yeah watercolor is so underrated. Because it's so hard to do well. If it's done well, it is just done so amazing. Mm -hmm. I, uh, watercolor, yeah. I envy painters of all kinds because I just like, I feel like, darn it, I could be good at this. I can, I can sketch okay, and I can, you know, draw little cartoons okay. How come I? But every time I try and paint, it's just like this is a disaster. I quit forever. Bye. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned theater, I believe, too. Are you an actor of any kind? or? Well, again, it's like one of these things where I used to do that sort of thing. I feel like I can read lines okay. I was Constable Warren once at, in our town. I'm just I'm sorry. I was Mr. Darling and Peter Pan okay. <laughs> nice. I'm not kidding. No, that's uh, fine. That's <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, I... I've, been into that kind of thing and i've also been involved in local arts scene things where music composition crisscrosses with live spoken word theater there's a thing called the performers workshop ensemble which may or may not still be happening at the moment but you know they used to have house theater that involved like some songs some acting some experimental electronic music some of this and some of that. So that was a, th a thing I did here in Champaign-Urbana in the 90s and early aughts. I feel like it all goes together. It's just creativity is creativity and what you use to make it come out is, and, and how it comes out, that's just details. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. 
and talking about your song, Let's Hang, off of your album, Terrarium, which can be found on Bandcamp. And I believe that you're, you're making some very thoroughly work-intensive 25 limited copies of this album as well, hard copy that that people can buy. Are those going to be available on Bandcamp or? No, I don't think so. I think the way to go for this is to say I have made them available as pre-orders to just friends and I'll have them in my merch case when I have my merch case with me. Maybe by the time you hear this, they'll be all gone. You know, I've gotten some into the hands of some old friends who always want one from me and uh, 25 is an okay number such that I don't feel like I'll be carrying them around forever and ever. Will I do a second pressing? I'm not sure. I definitely won't do them on the floor. The first time I did them, I was kneeling on the floor doing the rubber stamping. And then my back hurt for like literally a whole week after that. So I I need to find a surface that's like, you know, like a big picnic table, you know. And of course, my wife could let me have the dining room table after she's done making all of her amazing artwork. We'll talk about that later, dear. (laughs) Excellent. Well, uh, Paul, yes. thank you so much for being on the show and making the journey out to the good old Sidoris. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I look forward to uh, hearing more of your work and, and when... And I'll certainly post something about your 25th anniversary if there's a party coming up, mm. that kind of thing. It's all a um, party. It's always a party. Always a party. Okay. Excellent. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Champagne is Also a Band podcast. This is Paul Kotheimer, Urbana songwriter, reminding you, great music is out there. Go find it where you live. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> studio. South Beaker on the inside.